Welcome to Deviant Women, the podcast where we talk about deviant women from history, mythology, literature, and contemporaneity. I'm Lauren. I'm Alicia. We're your hosts, as always. And how are you doing today, Lauren? It's cold and dreary and wintry and sad. <laughs> oh, that's a bit sad, isn't it? It is a bit, isn't it? We're staring into a, a long, cold winter. Yeah. That's a coming. We've got the heater on and I'm wearing a beanie and a knitted jumper that I quite like. Yeah, I am thinking about our friends over in the Northern Hemisphere who are stepping into spring and summer and are posting pictures on the internet of nice, beautiful spring days that make me feel sad. <laughs> Oh, no, well, they make me feel no. good. Please get, don't stop posting your beautiful summery pictures. Yeah. We're going to embrace our winter and we'll have nice cosy fires, but that's not the only reason we're thinking about our friends in the Northern <sighs> northern Hemisphere, is it? Or feeling sad. Or feeling sad and dreary. despondent. <laughs> yes. We're also feeling sad and despondent because of what's been happening specifically in North mm. America, of course, at the moment. With uh, the attack on women's reproductive rights. Yeah, we have, we're all the way over in Australia and we fortunately, I suppose, are not hearing the same kind of really, frankly, really terrifying rhetoric around women's reproductive rights. Our laws are not perfect by any means, but they're also not under threat directly. But even from this distance, it is a really awful horrible Mm. thing to be hearing about and we're hearing about it a lot like we can't separate ourselves from the stuff that's happening in North America and also I think it's a really good reminder that this is a conversation that is not also located just within the western world or within North America that it is women's reproductive health is an issue that is ongoing despite the fact that the figure of today's episode began you know this important work over a hundred years ago Mm. that there is still fuck me so fucking far to go yeah that's right so today we're going to be talking about a birth control activist from the early 1900s margaret sanger and we're talking about her in a particularly american context because of course the particular situation that's happening in america at the moment so while today's conversation is set in that sort of american context we're going to spread this conversation out across two Mm. episodes because it's a, a hugely obviously a hugely significant and important conversation to have so today's episode is basically just going to be a starting point to launch us into a bigger conversation that we're going to have into our next fortnight as well so with that said, I suppose we should also say that, you know, this is going to be a difficult couple of episodes. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if you'd rather not listen to this difficult yeah. couple of episodes, then please, by all means, and do. <laughs> like, don't don't listen if you if you don't feel you are going to be comfortable with it. And, and take care of yourself when you do as well. We engage in these conversations because we feel they are important and we feel like we need to. But you do need to engage in self-care at mm. the same time. That's really, really important. 
Absolutely. So as I said, this conversation is in that American context, but I think something else that we really want to acknowledge as well is that, of course, we take a lot of these rights for granted. Mm. And that's exactly what we see happening at the moment. We see it in a very westernized context, whereas, of course, there are loads of countries, millions of women around the world who have basically zero access to any kind of reproductive rights, which is what makes it seem even more terrifying in countries where we think we've already fixed that problem. And it's going backwards. And it's going backwards. Absolutely. We think, oh, we've got that sorted. Cool. We can move forward. And if we can move forward, then we can try and help those who need our help, we can mm. focus on that now. We can turn our, our attention to, you know, helping our sisters across the world. Mm. But how can we do that if we're still moving yeah. backwards? Because let's not mix words here. Like women's reproductive health and women's agency over their own reproductive health is fundamentally connected, not just to their own personal, you know, health and well-being, but to their ability to be active Mm. agents in the world economically to have freedom to be able to make the choices that they want to make to live their lives according to the way they want to live them to become independent not reliant on others around them particularly men and to be able to progress in the world Mm. and particularly to be able to lift themselves out of poverty yeah it's fundamental to women's ability to become active, equal agents in the world. And to see people so actively campaigning to take this away from women also sends signals that women don't belong in the world as active, independent, financially successful people. Mm -hmm. Get back in the kitchen. Yeah. Get back to the housework. Get back to the job of raising babies, ladies. So maybe let's talk about a time when things were like on the up and up. (laughs) This is already getting really hard, isn't it? Well, it is. It is. I think that it actually is, even though we are going back 100 years, right, and it feels like we're going back, it feels like we're actually going backwards 100 years as well, I think it is really empowering at the same time to remind ourselves of the struggles that women have fought over the centuries, Mm, right? And overcome. And overcome. Mm. So Margaret Sanger is the figure that we're going to use as sort of our lens to look into this in that American context today. And she is actually by no means a perfect individual, right? She's pretty problematic. And we'll get to some of her more problematic issues and beliefs as we go along. But she really was at the forefront of the birth control movement in America. And I think as well, really importantly, helped to sort of usher in the birth control pill as yeah, well, which absolutely. was a complete game changer. And she was also, correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't she kind of foundational in the establishment of Planned Parenthood? She, in fact, that is she founded yeah, Planned okay. Parenthood. She did. <laughs> so maybe let's begin with her early life because I think something else, you know, we've touched on that idea of what access women have globally to reproductive rights. And obviously the poorer you are, the, the less access you yes, have. absolutely. And this was something that was important to Margaret because this is what pretty much inspired her to start 
working in this field and really become an activist anyway. So she was born Margaret Higgins in uh, September of 1879 in New York State. Her father was Catholic. Now, Uh interestingly, sorry, I was just going to make a terrible joke that I'm not going to (laughs) make. Well, what's the joke? Oh, it's just, you know, like the Monty Python meaning of life type of joke of <laughs> Catholics having so many babies, they're literally like falling out of their bodies. Um, I apologize. My- well, it's actually quite relevant to, to Margaret's young, yeah. young years. Well, yeah. I mean, interestingly, yeah. So her father was a Catholic, but he became an atheist later Oh, on. interesting. Okay. And he actually became an activist for women's suffrage. So oh, good on him. He changed his spots. He but no longer believed that every sperm is sacred. Every sperm is good. All right, yeah. we don't need to keep singing Monty <laughs> Python, but I think we've all got the picture. I mean, he sounds like he becomes a pretty good dude. Yeah. But he did impregnate his wife, Margaret's mother, 18 times. Catholic. I just don't. Ooh. Yeah, 18 times. She carried 11 oh, of those fuck. to life and she died at 49. Like, Jesus. No fucking wonder, hey? I see, this. Oh, fuck me. Like, it's okay, it's all very well and good to go. Jesus, 18 is a lot. But that literally killed her. You did. Yes, exactly. And that's fuck. Can you fucking imagine spending your entire adult life pregnant? And giving mm-hmm. birth and then watching those children die. Yeah, yeah. Over and over and over again. So this is Margaret's young years, right? Yeah. So we can see how hugely this affected her. Absolutely. And the fact that her mother died so young. We can see how this feeds forward, obviously, into the work that she's going to do mm. as an inspiration. So she was the sixth of the surviving children. And you can kind of imagine how much housework and raising of the other children Absolutely. would have come down yep. to her as well. Because this is the other thing. It puts such an unfair burden on the elder daughters in these families and then they often get stuck in a cycle of poverty because they've been forced to raise their younger siblings because either their mother has died in childbirth or under the pressure of having a million children or because they simply can't keep up with all of that yeah. work. And also the age at which so many of those children have to go out to work yeah. early in order yeah. to try and support the rest of the enormous family. And this is not a unique story. Not by any means. And it's still not a unique story no. now. But at the moment we're situated in sort of the late 1800s, right? We're coming into the 20th century. So, you know, hopefully things are going to change soon, Lauren. Yeah. Maybe? Yeah. We'll see. Great. So by the end of her teens, she was fortunate enough to have made it through college. And That's surprising. Yeah, surprising. So her elder sisters actually helped to support her through college of as well. Of course they did. So, thanks. God bless those older sisters. <laughs> Definitely. When she finished college, she enrolled as a nurse at the local hospital on the Hudson River. Mm. So here she also met an architect called William Sanger. So this is where she gets the surname Sanger, which in Australia is what we call a sandwich. It is. A Sanger. So, yeah, like Lord Sandwich could be Lord Sanger. Lord Sanger. So William Sandwich and Margaret said no. But William Sanger was the man she met and they were married in 1902. Now, Margaret didn't have the best of health throughout her life. She actually suffered from consumption. Mm. Um, But she still gave birth to three children. Three, that's conservative. Three, which is a conservative amount of children, right? Yeah. And you'd think that maybe she learnt that lesson from her own parents. I think so. So she had two boys and a girl. Now, in 1911, their quiet little suburban life was destroyed by fire. Oh, no. Yeah, their house burnt down. Oh, fuck. I know. 
How's that? Did they even have insurance and stuff back then? I've got no fucking idea, my friend. Yeah, probably not. Probably not. But it was kind of, in the end, serendipitous perhaps because they thought, you know what, screw it. And they left their life behind on the Hudson and they moved to New York City. Oh, big smoke. Big smoke. Now here Margaret kept working as a nurse and she started working in the slums of the east side. Ah. So this is where... Her life takes a big turn, yeah. right? Because I, I imagine that she's encountering that, yeah, that cycle of pumping out a million children over and over, and the death and yeah. and the poverty, the miscarriages and yep. the stillbirths, and probably I'm going to assume back alley abortions. Absolutely, into the mix. yes, completely. So this is where she first encountered that real sense of, as you said, that cycle that these women were caught up in Mm. and couldn't get themselves out of because they didn't have any recourse to get themselves Mm. out of it. And here were thousands of working-class women, immigrant women, poor women, and, you know, they were frequently pregnant. And most of Margaret's time is spent working with women who miscarried because, of course, as well, that was a huge It would have been so common. Problem. Yeah. I mean, it's still common now. We don't talk about exactly. it very no, often. We, no one ever talks about miscarriage it. Miscarriage is so common yeah. still. And also women who suffered from complications from pregnancy or childbirth. Mm. And as you said, back alley home job abortions mm. as well, which the fucking horror. Yeah. The fucking yeah. horror. But we're not going to dwell on that because Lauren <laughs> and I are both already tearing up. Yeah. <laughs> um, I can see it. We are. So... This kind of milieu of like this shitstorm of poverty that Margaret was seeing around her really affected her deeply. Yeah. And she said that at the time she was scouring libraries to find information on birth control, but that nothing existed. Now, because is this, I mean, contraception has existed for millennia. Yes. But it is the kind of thing that belongs to that kind of. Female knowledge that mm-hmm. oral, you know, old wives tale style, mother to daughter, female knowledge of the kind of plants you need to use or the kinds of devices you devices. can use. Yeah. And so it really isn't something that is in the kind of established medical literature that's sort of owned by the, the male medical establishment and... Well, interesting you should say that, Lauren, because some biographers have actually suggested that she was probably not looking all that hard. Oh, because because it does exist. It does exist. It did exist. Because as you said, contraceptive methods had been around for a long time. Now, what happened in America was a very specific sort of coming together of circumstances that meant that the writing around contraception became much more prohibited than it actually had been Earlier on. Yeah. So there were definitely documents that already outlined the methods that existed. And there was writing in circulation that discussed things like condoms, mm. vaginal douching, suppositories, tampons. Mm. Not that that's going to stop you getting pregnant. And things called the womb veil, which is like a diaphragm, basically. Yeah. Wow, that's, that's what a... Cervical pessary, right? Like a womb veil, that sounds like some kind of like sacred diaphragm. It does, doesn't <laughs> like, it? It's got all these connotations of... I don't know. It's my sacred diet. Yeah. I like it. Well, it's interesting because this idea actually plays into something that a few biographers have mentioned about Margaret was that she was she was one for showmanship, right? Or mm-hmm. showwomanship, I should say. 
So there are some stories that she offers as an orator that kind of build into the mythology of her inspiration. And this was very common for all activists, you know, at the time and still activists now, you know, the stories that they would tell. So whether or not she maybe did find some of this, but at the same time, even if she did, the writing that was there wasn't particularly useful for poor immigrant Mm. women in the slums, right? Mm. A lot of whom couldn't read English anyway. Yeah. So, and that access to the information was out of their reach. They're not the kind of people who are going into the library looking up the birth control section and reading about... And there's no Google. No, that's right. So the other part of this as well, as I mentioned before, were the laws that existed too. So... A lot of this information was prohibited on grounds of obscenity. 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 Yeah. I know. This is the fucking problem, isn't it? Is it because is. where that line between sex education mm-hmm. and I don't know, because we're talking about sex, it must be in like a pornographic context. Yes. Well, interesting you should say that. Again, you keep bleeding into the next point I want to make. No, that's good. Because as I was mentioning, In an earlier time, contraception wasn't so heavily restricted. But what happened was in the late 1800s, there was some activism around pornography, right? Mm. And in 1873, an act called the Comstock Act was passed. Mm. Now, this act was for the suppression of trade in and circulation of obscene literature and articles of immoral use, mm-hmm. right? So this act criminalised, uh, this specifically criminalised the usage of the US Postal Service what? to send anything obscene or sexual in nature oh. in the post, right? Okay, so they can't, okay, so it's not even just that you can't buy it, you can't order you it. You can't distribute it. Yeah. You can't order it, you can't distribute it. And this extended to things like letters with sexual content, <sighs> sex toys. Who's e- reading these letters? Like, know. are they censored? <laughs> yeah, the They're opening your letters and being like, <laughs> all right, there you go. Uh, contraceptives and any content or information about contraceptives, right? So as I said before, this contraception wasn't regulated so heavily. No one was really paying attention. But then, of course, that Comstock Act comes out of an anti-pornography campaign that sort of started up after the Civil War. And contraception, unfortunately, kind of gets swept up up into it. Yeah, it's kind of this blanket law. Because, again, I don't know, is this a particularly American thing? It feels like it's a particularly American thing to equate sexual education and medical knowledge with pornography. Yeah, which is, I guess, why they have abstinence-only sex education at school, because, well, there's other reasons for that as well. But you know, but not just with pornography, but with any kind of sexual activity. That the idea that sex exists is entirely kind of wound up with also just general, yeah, sexual knowledge. Yeah, so important. But this is the problem, right? Because that general ignorance about trying to not let anyone know anything about sex, of course, leads to a general ignorance about. Baby making. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And for pretty much this reason that Margaret couldn't find this literature out there, she started her own newsletter in 1914 called The Woman Rebel. Yes. Which is a great name for a newsletter. Yes. I love it. And it was an eight-page monthly newsletter which was promoting contraception, right? Mm. So it included pictures of contraceptive devices, how to use contraceptive mm. devices, and you can imagine that, look, that upset some people pretty badly oh no doubt absolutely yeah and (laughs) sorry america you know it's true 
she sort of started it with the express goal of provoking a legal challenge mm-hmm. to this Comstock Act. So as she's well. trying to be an activist. Yes, exactly. Sense. She yeah. wants to. She's super concerned about these the bans on you know the dissemination of information about contraception. She actively wants to push against it. And I suppose also it probably comes down to that whole thing of all publicity is good publicity. The more of an uproar that is created about her newspaper about contraception, I suppose the more chance she has of people seeing her newspaper about contraception. Yeah, that's right. And so this is pretty much the reason that she started this particular journal. And later in her life, she would cite incidents that inspired her to try and change things and to become the activist that she would become. And as I mentioned, some biographers question whether or not some of those moments actually occurred. And one of them is this story about a woman called Sadie Sachs, which is a really mm. good name, Yeah, it actually. is a good name. It is very good name literal. for a book. It is. It is. And apparently this was a woman, and, and Margaret would tell this story in a lot of her sort of speeches and in her autobiography as well, about how she'd met Sadie and Sadie had been warned by her doctor that another birth would probably kill her. And when she asked the doctor how to avoid another pregnancy, he told her to make Mr. Sachs sleep on the roof. Mm. Now, I'm sure the doctor had a lot of fucking lols about that for days. But, of course, Sadie fell pregnant again. Of course. And she died while trying to terminate the pregnancy herself. Now, again, biographers haven't necessarily been able to corroborate this story Mm. and find information to actually back it up whether or not it happened. But whether or not this particular woman existed and this particular story happened, it's representative of the thousands mm. of women that this happened to. That it right? seemed like it, this is an inevitable part of life. Your husband is going to have sex with you because that is what is natural and is his right and childbirth is your fundamental reason yeah. of being. So just fucking deal with it. Yeah, yeah. So this fed into her political views and her husband as well was forming these same, William, remember old William Sanger? Mm. He he was forming these views as well. So she joined up uh, with the Women's Committee of New York, the Socialist Party. She took part in labour actions, industrial strikes, and she began to meet some pretty influential people, right? So she's getting pretty politicised. And one of the people that she met at the time was the anarchist Emma Goldman. Um, oh. don't know if you've heard of her before. Now, she eventually helped Margaret to gain support and funding from this Free Speech League, who were against government censorship of free speech, obviously, yep. hence the name, and who also helped her with advice during the many legal battles that uh, that <laughs> Margaret was going to have in her, life. in her lifetime. So um, she was in this kind of milieu of prominent people in New York, prominent activists, socialists, people who were really driving for change. Mm. And so into this, she put the Woman Rebel magazine. She also wrote essays for a socialist magazine called The New York Call. And a couple of the essays she wrote were called What Every Mother Should Know and What Every Girl Should Know. Oh, nice. And these were pretty full on for the time, right? So as I said, same with that Woman Rebel kind of thing. They had very upfront details about sex. That was probably genuinely what every woman and every girl needed Needed to to know. know. Yeah. But of course they were banned under the Comstock Act, right? So even though they were banned, the printers kind of kept publishing headlines like what every girl should know. Nothing by order of the post office department. (laughs) Like, so there was still (laughs) sort of like 
playing into it, still trying to get their message out there while making a very clear statement about how censorship was stopping them from being able to actually disseminate any useful information to these women. And not just women as well, like families in general. So eventually, of course, you can imagine that postal authorities, because (laughs) stupid Comstock Act, suppressed most of the issues Mm. of The Woman Rebel. And Sanger kept up publication and she started to work on another publication as well called Family Limitation. And this eventually led to her being charged with violating the Comstock Act because she was sending issues of The Woman Rebel. Through the mail. Sending, yeah, her information, disseminating it through the post, right? What a... Horrible crime. What a horrible, terrible crime. I just love how implicated the postal office is in, in this whole going through your in going through your mail. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So to escape prosecution, she left for Europe. Didn't see that. Yeah, coming. Europe yeah. is definitely the well Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. It is probably a better place it to be. It is a lot more liberal at yeah. this particular point in time, right? Because I said she's in a very restrictive context at the moment. Mm. Whereas in Europe they had a much more liberal concept towards mm. contraception. So her time in exile, I suppose, was really very formative in changing that kind of activist anger that she had that Mm -hmm. led her to just publish, put this stuff out in the world, push back. It helped to kind of reform the way that she would become an activist. And this was through some of the people that she met while she was in Europe. So she spent a lot of time in exile in England and she began to learn about Malthusianism. Now, this is concerned with population control, Ah, right? Is this anywhere close to eugenics? Yeah, it's getting towards eugenics. Okay. And this is one of the problematic... This is where we enter into the problematic territory. That is correct, yes. Yeah. So Malthusianism is concerned with population growth outstripping resources, actually, basically, right, in a nutshell. And she started to apply the same concept to her reasoning about birth control. Mm. So she became very active with the American branch of the Malthusians when she went back to America. And overpopulation remained one of her core concerns. It's a little bit separate to eugenics. So we'll leave eugenics for a moment, Mm -hmm. but know that that is coming up in her story. So is she tying this to economic? Yes. So at the moment she's tying this idea to yeah. a socioeconomic problem. Yeah, right? that in that people who live in poverty shouldn't have as many babies because they don't have the resources to support yeah. the amount of children that they're having. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So it was also during this time in Europe that she met a man named Havelock Ellis. Of course she did. Yes, yeah, she did. And he'd written, of course, on the psychology of sex. Mm. I feel like you know about Havelock Ellis. Oh, well, I just... I just assume everybody knows about Havelock Ellis. Do they? I don't think they do. No, probably not. Well, I guess he was a really early writer and publisher of sexuality and not just of kind of the psychology of sexuality, but he was one of the first people to also really properly look at things like homosexuality Mm -hmm. and acknowledge that homosexuality was a real thing and not like a psychological disorder. Yeah, or a perversion. Yeah, Mm. and people exist on a spectrum, that sexuality is fluid. So he was really pretty fundamental in a lot of that really early thinking about sexuality and he influenced her thinking about sexuality as well quite a lot and also about that idea that you know sex could be more than just a procreative act yeah you know and especially for women that it could be a pleasurable act what the fuck women might have sex for any reason like other than having a baby (laughs) like maybe just to have a nice time wow you are kidding me (laughs) but i mean that in itself 
was incredibly yeah and also even just that it's not just her duty to her husband yes that it's his pleasure and that it's her role as his help meet to (laughs) help his meet oh gross gross yeah sorry about that lauren that was so very very graphic (laughs) but it made that up then yeah it was good i liked it but at the same time, it was also Ellis who sort of told her that her methods had maybe been a little bit too forceful, right? <laughs> and I've got a great quote from him saying that not one rebel or even many rebels can crush law by force. This needs skill even more than it needs strength. Mm. So he helped her to kind of make, form her ideas into a more consistent sort of philosophical justification for birth control, yeah. right? Instead of just this kind of, I'm going to publish shit until yeah. you change the Bludgeon laws. you over and, the head. Exactly. Stuff, yeah. So he also convinced her to head off to Holland to meet with a doctor there who, because Holland had quite advanced contraception. Um, Unsurprisingly. Unsurprisingly. Who introduced her to a new kind of diaphragm, Mm. right? And this started to change her thinking on the spread of contraceptive guidance because until now she'd sort of been a proponent for women teaching women, right? So the woman rebel, all of her pamphlets previously had been, as you said, now this is actually, this is really key was in that tradition of passing on women's knowledge, Mm -hmm. right? Women should teach women, you should know this. As a woman, I'm telling you this. Mm -hmm. Like, you tell your friends, this is how we pass on knowledge. But the doctor that she met with in Holland advised her that women should be medically fitted with these diaphragms by a physician, right? And this changed her thinking completely. And it also kind of changes the direction of birth control too. Right. Because now it becomes a thing where the key concept is getting a physician to fit a diaphragm to tick off on that's going to be the right thing for you for your health, right? So it's making it a health issue and not simply a women's rights issue or an economic issue. Yeah. And so it's putting it into the hands of the medical establishment mm. as well. And they, because they have more authority, she's thinking this is going to help her case This more. is the way to go. Mm. And this comes back to so much stuff we've talked about in the past, right, around women's knowledge getting overtaken by the medical establishment. The medical establishment. Mm. And it's really, it is an interesting idea to think that having, I guess, having that epiphany, that moment of being like, this is how I make this an issue is if Mm. I make it a medical issue in the medical man's world Mm. that I can actually... Because if a man in a white coat is saying these words, he's going to be listened to. Yeah, that's right. Even though that idea of having something fitted by a doctor Mm. is unpleasant and certainly not something that I think Margaret would have been entirely comfortable with herself. And, And let's be honest, also kind of adds another barrier of entry. It does, absolutely. I think it also did offer her that way of thinking about how else might we approach making this a more palatable idea, birth control a more palatable idea yeah. to all those men, all that hierarchy mm. of men in, in politics. It's the know? legitimizing it. That's right. Yeah. And if I've... we can legitimize it through the male medical world, yeah. and I'm just putting that in inverted in, commas, yeah. of course, yeah. then perhaps that's a way that we can go about yeah. it. So she decided that she wanted to stay in Europe to continue to learn as much as she could about the different methods of contraception that were available there. And she wanted to kind of work, I suppose, as a bit of a birth control activist in absentia Mm. and to write about what she was finding there and send it back to America. So she was actually on the verge of accepting a three-year publishing contract with a publishing house in Paris. 
Um, nice. I know, it does sound nice, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> so she, this was what she was uh, in the middle of kind of contemplating how she was going to stay here and do this. When in early 1915, she received the news that husband William had gotten himself in a bit of trouble. Oh, dear. Yeah. Now, he was in trouble with uh, our old friend. The Comstock Law. He was. What a surprise. Because he had been distributing obscene pamphlets on birth control. Lauren, obscene. (laughs) Obscene. Obscene. Anything to do with your downstairs junk is obscene. It is. It doesn't matter if it's a sexy time or a very important knowledge time. It's all obscene. It's just obscene. So they'd actually been estranged for some time, for a couple of years, William and Margaret, but... They shared so many of the same values and William was still working for the advancement of birth control. And Margaret thought, well, you know what? All right, I better head back home. Yeah, plus she's got a couple of children that if her estranged husband is in prison for a short amount of time. Someone's going to probably have to look after them. So she headed back to America. Now, he was tried and convicted to spend 30 days in jail Mm. for his obscene act of distributing (laughs) such disgusting knowledge. So she returned to America, returning to her children and to her work, promoting birth control. And old William got out of jail after his 30 days. But, hey, you're just going to go straight back to it. (laughs) Of course you are. Well, within a year of her return, she had opened the first family planning and birth control clinic in the U.S. of A. In Brooklyn. So she came back totally recharged from her time overseas, Mm. inspired with all the new knowledge that she had, and she just wanted to get down to to business. Wanted to get down to business, wanted to get down to work. So she opened this clinic with her sister alongside her, her sister Ethel, who was also a trained nurse, because obviously don't forget she's a nurse, Mm. and another woman as well called Fania Mindel. Whoa. Wow. Great name. Fania Mindel. So many great names in this particular story. (laughs) Now, they opened this clinic, you know, without any permissions. Okay. You know, they, they just opened it up and they distributed flyers advertising the services. They distributed flyers in English, Yiddish, and Italian. Oh, wow. I assume that those are the primary communities that live there. That they were aimed at. Yeah. Correct. And the pamphlets basically, the little advertising pamphlets basically, advertised the services that they offered. And the little pamphlet said, Mothers, can you afford to have a large family? Mm. Do you want any more children? If not, why do you have them? (laughs) What an excellent question. Do not kill. Do not take life but prevent. Now, that's an interesting thing that we'll come back to as well. Safe, harmless information can be obtained of trained nurses. Tell your friends and neighbours. All mothers welcome. A registration fee of 10 cents entitles mothers to this information. Right. And it's interesting that they're also targeting mothers. So they're targeting women who already have children and don't want to have more And don't want to have 100 more. They're not targeting Young women, women. single women who just want to be sexually promiscuous. That's right. And this is sexually promiscuous. Jeez, what a harsh way of putting that. Um, In the context of the time. In the context of the time. Sorry, I should say that. I should say within the context of the period. Yeah. Well, these are the women that she dealt with anyway in her time as a nurse. They were married women Mm. and they were young. You know, women got married young anyway. So there was not much time to run around and be promiscuous. So I just mean that it, in the sense of thinking of it as being something that's obscene, right? Mm. It's not promoting like no. sexual behavior that's not kind of condoned. It's not like the authorities can claim that she's telling, you know, young women, oh, hey, did you know about these contraceptive methods? And that yeah. means that you can 
do have whatever as much you want sex as you want and you can party mm. she's talking about reproductive health yeah. to women who are already in established married yeah. relationships they've had as many children as they can and want to and want to and it again recalls her mother doesn't mm. it like, and it's about their health yeah fundamentally yeah first and foremost it's about their health yeah and the clinic was fucking popular yeah not surprisingly as you could imagine it was crowded from the moment the doors opened crowded mm. with women and with women who had you know prams with their children yeah. in it all they're tagging along there you know dragging their other children along mm. with them on the pavement you know they were women who were just simply like i can't keep doing this yeah i need to stop having babies yeah but it didn't take long before of course as you can imagine mm. the law cracked down nine days nine days only took nine <laughs> days before the police cracked down confiscated most of the articles that they had for distribution, which were condoms and pessaries, diaphragms. Yeah. And this is where that idea that we were talking about before becomes really interesting, right? This idea about the medical profession mm-hmm. that she kind of got that idea from when she was in Europe because there was a clause under Section 1145, if anybody wants to look Section 1145 <laughs> up, of the Act Against Contraception Distribution, which you know, I'm sure as an act that will probably come back into vogue soon <laughs> with how we're mm-hmm. tracking yep. at the moment globally. It exempted distribution of contraception if they were distributed by a physician on medical grounds yeah. for health reasons. Okay, so right. this is sharing a lot of parallels with contemporary, like, abortion laws. Precisely, really. yeah. precisely. But the problem here was that none of them were physicians. They were Mm. nurses, right? So they couldn't use this clause. They need a man in a white coat. They need a man in a white coat. And Sanger said... Did they get one? Well, she said... Well, no. Oh. No. Not now. Not now. I'm sorry. You were so ready for that to be a lovely conclusion, weren't you? No. Well, Sanger hadn't managed to find any doctors who were willing to work at the clinic, Right. Right. But after this crackdown, they reopened the clinic, they continued to run the clinic, but of course it didn't take long Mm. until the police were on them again and this time they were arrested. Mm. So she was arrested along with Ethel and Fania. So Ethel was sentenced to 30 days in a workhouse. Oh, but she went on hunger strike. Oh, really? Yeah. So taking inspiration from... The suffragettes over in England. The suffragettes. She went on a hunger strike. Now, something else to keep in mind here as well is that the First World War is happening at this point. Oh, right, okay. Two, right? Yep. And the First World War is, you can imagine that's pretty much front page news. Mm. Well, Ethel became front page news. She became bigger than the war. What? Because she was on this hunger strike, but she was being force fed, mm. right? And she was the first woman in American prison system that this occurred to. So does that mean she's also one of the first to go on a hunger strike? She's yeah. just the first to be force fed. Force fed, mm. yeah. And she was force fed with brandy, oh. warm milk and eggs through a tube inserted in her throat oh god which is pretty that's disgusting so you you can imagine hey female bodily autonomy no such thing so this front page news though helped to and again as i said margaret was that had that bit of showman womanship Mm. to her this kind of helped to build up support for their cause right because people were starting to get outraged about how these women were being treated. Mm. Did they use any of the suffragette 
of rhetoric or any of the kind of ties to women's rights to also support the cause at the time? Because it seems like it's they're not really billing it as a, a feminist a issue. Yeah. No, no, she's not really linked up with the women's suffrage movement mm. so much because she's much more focused on this particular issue. It seems like it's more of a class issue for her. Yeah. And I an suppose. economic issue. Yeah. And, I mean, it's definitely a women's rights issue, but I don't know if at the time she would have really positioned it as such. And the suffrage movement was really focused much more on women's right to on vote. vote. That's yeah. right. Yeah. But as I said, there was kind of, I suppose women's suffrage was feeding into the support that they were gaining though. Mm-hmm. Like even if they weren't using it as leverage mm-hmm. to grow their cause, it certainly was playing into. It's in the background. The Yeah. Playing into the zeitgeist of the time. Yeah. Other people were concerned with women's suffrage. And one outrage writer for the New York Tribune wrote, It will be hard to make the youth of 1967 believe that in 1917 a woman was imprisoned for doing what Mrs. Byrne did, which was Ethel, Ethel Byrne, her last name was. And that's a sad, sad quote to be reading, isn't it? Because it's becoming increasingly believable for the youth of 2019, (laughs) isn't it? Yeah. Like, it's so telling when, you know, people are like, oh, the future generations will be outraged. Yeah. And it's like, well, yeah, yeah. definitely. But then we're going around again. Yep. So I just think that's incredibly that, portentous. That 50 years of quote-unquote progress was so minimal really, Yeah, wasn't it? And at the same time as Ethel was on her hunger strike, Sanger was convicted as well to mm-hmm. 30 days of prison. But... By the time she went into prison, because her trial actually came later, Ethel was the first one trialed, the war was back on the front page Aww. news, so she didn't bother with a hunger strike. <laughs> she was just like, it's not worth it. She's like, nah, yeah. it's cool. Good job, sister, but I'm not going to. Excellent work on yeah. that, but I don't think I'll bother. Yeah. So, But she appealed her conviction to the New York Supreme Court and the New York Court of Appeals. She lost, but she did manage to move her project forward mm. because the judge of the New York Court of Appeals did issue a new ruling which changed the way that doctors were allowed to prescribe contraception, right? Oh. So it made the reasons for the provision of contraception more lenient. And this sort of built again into that support that was growing. And after her release from prison, she received the support of donors who wanted to help fund a clinic, fund her endeavours. Yep. So by the, the early 1920s, she'd founded the American Birth Control League and soon afterwards she established the Clinical Research Bureau, which was the first legal birth control clinic and it was staffed by all-female hey. doctors as well. What? All-female doctors? All-female doctors. Fuck yes. Which is fucking progressive, right? That's, That's amazing. That's That's 1923. Wow. So she... Received funding from the Rockefeller family uh-huh. as well to set this up, which is kind of ironic because early in her earlier writings, she'd really blasted Rockefeller. <laughs> like she really took him to task. But it was pretty impressive that she now was managing to actually get these clinics established, mm. keep them open, get all female doctors yes. prescribing contraception. Amazing. Yeah, exactly. So it's such a huge leap and forward. Because also think about it even just as, again, thinking about it from an access perspective, how much more likely are women in that day and age to go to a female doctor to talk about their That's women's right. issues? Yeah. Really, you know? Because you don't want to go, yeah, precisely. It's intimidating today in 2019. I don't want to talk to a man doctor about my women's issues. No, no, thank you very much. I agree, absolutely. So 
this is really, as I said, like this is actually really progressive. Yeah. It's quite an impressive move. So this was a real win in her long-time campaign. And she also had another boon at this time as well. She married again. Oh, good. She fa- okay. fell in love and married again. And she married a chap called James Slee, which is another fucking great name. So many great names. And he helped the cause, right? He was big into the cause as well. I can't imagine that she would marry anyone who wasn't. No, that's right. So even though she was getting these clinics up and running, there was still a lot of loopholes in the laws, right? A lot of things you could and couldn't do. Mm. And he actually went into the smuggling business, smuggling diaphragms from Canada over the border back to New York. In boxes labelled as three-in-one oil. <laughs> as you A three-in-one oil. Yeah. Good. But later he did become the first legal manufacturer of diaphragms in the United States. Good job. So she managed to... She's hooking herself up with the right people. Hook up with the right people, getting the right people on board. So and, of course, it doesn't surprise me at all that Canada was already way ahead on the diaphragm front. It's the diaphragm centre of the world. <laughs> I don't know. No, it's not. And there were other countries as well. So not just Canada, but other countries as well, obviously, that were a little bit more advanced with what they had to offer. And she did go traveling again to visit a lot of other countries to see what was happening. So she also in the early 20s, she traveled to China and Korea and Japan. Wow. Which again, really quite progressive. She went to Japan another six times. Mm. She ended up working in China and Japan with some very prominent feminists, Mm -hmm. writers and politicians to establish family planning clinics there as well. Spreading it all over the place. Spreading that information. So this actually would inspire her later, later on in her life in the 50s. These international trips kind of inspired her to begin an international federation for Planned Parenthood as well. And she would be the president of that right until her fucking 80s. That's impressive. It's lifelong work. I, it is. That actually really doesn't surprise me because it's not like you just suddenly switch off. And, and go, yeah, no. Nah, n- yeah. Yeah, I'm done. When you've spent your whole life so passionately devoted to this course. Yeah. But, yeah, but that's much later in her life, towards the end of her life. But we're still sort of in the 1920s here. And there are conflicts kind of happening in the birth control league because on one of her trips overseas she left a Mrs. Ellen Dwight Jones in charge. And when she returned uh, she discovered that, you know, Jones had made a few changes saying I didn't appreciate, uh-huh. including stripping back some of the powers of the president, i.e. Oh, Sanger. As in, as in her. Yeah. As in her. <laughs> so she split from them and dedicated her time to the Clinical Research Bureau instead. So is, did she establish that? Is that another yes, new Yes, she did, one? yeah. So she went to, gave all of her time to this bureau. But by the 1930s, these kind of organizations had overcome their differences and this is when they emerged into what would become the Planned Parenthood Federation. Excellent. So she established the two bodies organizations yeah. that would become Planned Parenthood. That came together to become Planned Parenthood. Amazing. Yeah. She didn't like the name though. Oh, really? She thought Planned Parenthood was a bit too ambiguous. Yeah, I suppose. Well, yeah. She wanted like birth control in the title of the centre. <laughs> I think that, look, to be perfectly honest, what is happening today to Planned Parenthood is probably a good thing that the words birth control are not, uh, in, not the in the title. Yeah. But she, Keep it ambiguous because yeah. they're having a hard enough time they as it are. is in 2019. 19. So the 1930s that was established basically and now we're looking at, yeah. So this was, you know, this was a huge success. You know, she managed to actually finally get up and running these clinics that were essential for women who needed access to contraception and she continued to lobby to overturn 
restrictions on contraception. She was arrested at least eight times mm. for um, speaking publicly about birth control obscenity. as well. And such obscenity. And in in fact, in the in the late nineteen twenties, uh, she was told that she'd be arrested if she spoke at a rally. And she so she stood silently on stage with a gag on her mouth while someone else read her speech out for her. <laughs> so that's how you can get around that, people. That's just also such a good protest move, isn't it? It's a that's such a power move. Mm. Like fucking try me. I don't care. I'm gonna do it anyway. Yeah. Such an activist. She is such an activist, and that's such a yeah. That's such an image. That gag mm. over the mouth. I mm. feel that that's used quite a lot. Iconic. It's very iconic. But she, of course, was ever the showwoman, and we still have this problem. This archaic problem of those Comstock laws, right, mm. as well. So there's still a problem with the postal service where we still can't distribute information, yeah. right? So ever the showwoman. In um, 1932, she ordered a diaphragm from Japan, which she knew was going to be confiscated. Yeah. And predictably, it was confiscated. But the subsequent legal challenge that came up from that, so remember going back to the woman rebel, when she was sending that out intentionally to mm. provoke a legal challenge, she's done it again. Yeah. And this time, that legal challenge finally led to the overturning of the Comstock laws for good. Huzzah! Right? And this finally allowed doctors to be able to import contraceptive devices, contraceptive so information. They weren't even allowed to, even though they had kind of altered these laws that meant that a doctor could prescribe contraception under certain conditions, mm-hmm. they were still not allowed to import contraception yep. or disseminate contraception. That's right, yeah. Fuck's sake. So it still took until the 1930s before so that law was actually overturned. all of her clinics, she was disseminating illegal products. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Until yeah. the 1930s. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Great. Good, good stuff. Yeah. But after this ruling, finally as well, the American Medical Association embraced contraception right so they began to you know promote it as a normal medical service they began to add it to their curriculum for students studying (gasps) medicine wow as well feels like such a 180 yeah (laughs) and it's that is actually pretty amazing because before that how did you even learn that shit who was telling you that did they suddenly have this kind of big cultural shift where they started to see contraception from that perspective that she had been talking about in terms of it being, you know, a health issue and an economic issue, Mm. all that stuff. I think so. But I think there's also a money element to it as Uh, well. Like, I guess it is that kind of, and I suppose I'm a cynic, aren't I? I'm such a Mm. cynic about like the the medical establishment. Probably. Yeah. I'm probably not the only one. But I guess it's it's a new med- medicine we can sell you. It's a new yeah. – well, not medicine, but it's a new device, product, product, yeah. product we can sell you. That's yeah. right. So they did do a complete flip. But, of course, as well, I'm, I'm sure there was many, many doctors. Like she had loads of supporters mm. who just weren't willing to step outside of those bounds. Yeah, so they to didn't assist, want right? to be kind of publicly no. known to support because that could risk their career, yeah. I suppose. But mm. then once this ruling was overturned, once this law was overturned, they were able to now come out and mm. be like, actually, yes, we embrace this and we want to share this yeah. with families and with women. We want to be able to promote this type of information, these types of devices. So that was a, like a watershed moment, mm. right? And I guess for her, we talked about that idea of like you never kind of stop or you never sort of retire. But that kind of moment, she obviously must have felt in some way validated. Like mm. her work, what she'd been fighting for all this time was finally 
coming to fruition. Mm. She'd finally reached that goal. And she would have been in her 50s now? She was, yeah. Mm. And so this is the point where she sort of thought that she would leave a lot of the organisations into other people's hands. She'd sort of take a step back Mm -hmm. and not be at the centre of the work that was being done because she felt that she'd achieved what she'd set out to do. But, of course... As you said, you never really stop, Mm. do you? So she kept her fingers in the pie. She stayed involved in a lot of the advancements that were happening and a lot of the information that was being distributed. And in the early 1950s, she also became involved in gaining support for a biologist named Gregory Pincus, another great name. Where's this going? Who was in the process of developing a birth control pill. Oh, oh, I thought we were heading down the eugenics path. No. This is a good path. This is a different path. This is a different path. So up until now, we've been talking about things like diaphragms and condoms and all that sort of stuff, right? No oral contraceptive existed at this point. But Sanger had been thinking, she was like, how can we, what can we do? What else Mm. can we do that women can control their biology I suppose Mm. you know how else can we assist women to control conception Mm -hmm. so when she discovered that there was already some interest in starting to develop some kind of birth control pill she threw herself behind it 100% and she helped to convince the philanthropist Catherine McCormick to provide a butt ton (laughs) of funding towards this pill being developed now the pill itself there's a whole nother story there, right? It's got a huge history of its own. It's a little bit dark. Mm. Um, but I think what we might do is we might leave that for the next part of yep. our discussion. Yep. If that's next okay week. with you. Yes. Yeah. And just know that this is kind of the jumping off point yeah. for the next part of the discussion, moving into that kind of that new wave or the new way of thinking about women controlling mm. conception. So... It was dubbed the magic pill, but, you know, whether or not it's so magic, <laughs> we will see. Yeah. But at the same time, Sanger published many books. She started another monthly periodical called The Birth Control Review. She This was a little bit tamer to the, the woman rebel. I suppose she doesn't need to be as provocative now. No. And this was a bit more focused on science or quasi-science mm-hmm. around birth control. Right, right? okay. And Interesting. this is where we're getting to what you were talking about the, before. The problematic The problematic areas. stuff, right. Okay. So she did a lot of good, but, of course, she wasn't perfect. And, and, and she, she was a product of her time. I she was a product well. of her time. And a lot of this science was around eugenics. Yeah. So she was a proponent of negative eugenics, which is basically – aimed to improve, like, human hereditary traits through, you know, intervention, through... Selective breeding. Pretty much. But she wasn't... She wasn't a proponent of eugenics from, like, a racial perspective, No, she wasn't. So this is... Which is is the saving grace of this conversation. Yeah, it is, yeah. (laughs) So when we think of eugenics, we often think of eugenics in terms of, you know, that the Nazi program of eugenics where it's about eradicating on the basis of race and ethnicity, like a hierarchy of inferior races and superior races. Which Australia has a very big history of that. that. Oh, hell yeah. yeah. Absolutely. But she, her concept of eugenics was not so much based on race. Actually, it wasn't based on race at all. 
it was based on this idea of economic wealth. Mm-hmm. Who was fit and unfit to parent based on resources, right? Okay. So coming coming back again yeah. to that idea of overpopulation as well plays mm-hmm. into this. Yep. And but, resources. And resources. And I guess poverty. But, of course, another part of this as well is – uh, and another very unsavory part of this too is her views in relation to eugenics and people with disabilities mm-hmm. and people with intellectual disabilities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This did play into her yep. view of eugenics. So certainly not the world's most no. angelic woman. No. Yeah, so that's a little bit awkward. That's problematic. It's quite problematic. Yeah. She also did appear at a Ku Klux Klan rally mm. to speak. And she defended this by saying, so she she actually denied being a racist. She said she definitively wasn't. Look, lots of people deny being That's true. racist. That's very true. She defended her visit to the Ku Klux Klan women's auxiliary meeting by saying that, you know, it's always good to share the message of birth control with whoever's willing to listen to the message of birth control. And quite frankly, if anyone should be not breeding, <laughs> it's the Ku Klux Klan, right? Okay. All right. So okay, there's that, but then also <laughs> I feel like if she truly did believe in so anti-racism, then she just should have not probably not gone, not gone. Yeah, but yeah, okay, yeah. But that was her <laughs> defending of it, and I'm like, yeah, you, it's probably for the best that they don't breed. But that's a really difficult one because at the same time, she also was working with a lot of African American communities and leaders. Mm-hmm. And she worked with James Hubert, who was a social worker, and he asked her to open a clinic in Harlem, which she secured funding for, and she opened the clinic there in the 30s. And she was a huge proponent for interracial projects, I suppose. And one of the very first, because there actually ended up being a Margaret Sanger Award for um, human rights, and Mm. one of the first recipients was Martin Luther King. Wow. And he praised her work with minorities. So it's, yeah, it's a really... So it's complicated. It's a complicated sort of thing. Yeah. So she's quite progressive in a lot of ways for a woman of her time, but at the same time, I guess she's... I mean, she's not a product of the 21st century and it is sometimes difficult to, you know, distance ourselves Mm. from how different the world was then. And it was a very changing world as well. So not only was the world around her changing, but, you know, people's views and ideas and Mm. beliefs were changing, right? And I think, you know, some critics like Angela Davis, for one, who's a woman who we also need to do an episode on very soon, got her on my list. Mm -hmm. I've had her on my list for a long time. She saw a lot of Sanger's writings on African-American communities and African-American population control because I guess population mm. control right exactly. this is but this exactly. is part of her project she sees those as you know an, an attempt to reduce the, yeah. the black population against yeah. and look pe- you can you can see why people would oh definitely argue that point yeah so you know rather than as a project to decrease unwanted pregnancies mm. as a project and perhaps did because did she ever use it again because we've kind of touched on the fact that she didn't necessarily frame it as a feminist issue in the sense of an issue of allowing women that kind of autonomy and independence particularly economic independence as a way of lifting themselves out of poverty Mm. so I suppose if she's not framing her work with these communities in that way then it certainly can or if she's not even seeing necessarily her work yeah in that way but is seeing it as that population control from that perspective Mm -hmm. of resource management 
then I think that argument is stronger, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. let's say. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that this plays into that kind of, yeah, this plays into that problematic nature of Sanger's biography and how we read her biography. And I think we can argue that point. Mm. Yeah, you can argue that point definitely and convincingly. Mm. But I think essentially at the end of the day, her mission, her essential mis- mission was to improve women's lives and health. Yes. Right. That was her essential mission. So her desire to help women control pregnancy was one that she applied to poor and wealthy mm. women, middle class, lower class, working class. She applied it to women of colour as much as she did to immigrant women, mm-hmm. as much as she did to white women. So it's kind of hard for us to know for sure. Mm. But, again, I think it is also, as you said as well, that sense of being a product of her time mm. as well. This also plays weirdly into her anti-abortionist stance. Yeah. Which seems a little left field. Yeah. But she came to abortion from the perspective of one of if we have contraception, then abortion shouldn't be necessary, right? That's right. you quoted before that she kind of talked about don't kill, yes. avoid. Yeah. So I get the sense that maybe it's just that contraception hadn't progressed enough yet, that yeah. she was truly able to understand that all these problems yeah. exist around and how accessible it is and that there are so many people who don't have access yeah. still and that unwanted pregnancies still happen. And also as well, you have to remember the amount of botched abortions she witnessed yeah. and the amount of women who she as a nurse had to try to treat mm from botched back alley abortions. So for her, that was shocking. That was the last thing Mm. you wanted for a woman's health was an abortion. So this is actually, you're right, this is the place that she comes from in terms of her stance against abortion, that it should be about prevention first. And we were talking about this earlier. It's like, well, yeah, sure, in an ideal world, prevention first is a great Mm. idea. But we don't live in an Mm. ideal world. No one was living in an ideal world then and no one lives in an ideal world now. And this is the same case. This is the same argument for right now in the world that we live in right now is that it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what prevention is available Abortion is going to happen mm-hmm. no matter what. So what matters is making it safe yes. and available, mm-hmm. not trying to get rid of it because you fucking can't. No. And, well, this is leading us down a rabbit hole it that is I'm leading sure us we'll down. get to next week. We will. I have, yeah, we, I have very passionate feelings about yeah. We, yes, yeah, obviously, we'll get, <laughs> we'll get there. But I think this is the point at which we'll leave Margaret's story because – We've covered her life. We've covered the advancements that she's made. We've thrown up some of those problematic mm. ideas around the time in which she lived, I suppose, as we said, that shaped those beliefs and those ideas. And she, I mean, she lived until her mid-80s. Mm. She died in 1966 at the age of 86. Right on the verge. And it was about a year after the US finally legalised birth control that she died. Wow. Yeah, that's an incredible year to have died. Exactly. Wow. So she stuck around right until yeah. the very moment. Yeah. And then she went on her, her way. She's like, okay, my, okay. my work here is my done. My work here is done. <laughs> so, like, her legacy is, is a pretty impressive one. If you're interested in um, learning more about her, there's obviously more than I've touched on today. 
and there are experts out there who know a lot more about her than I do. I used a biography for most of this by David Kennedy. It's a well, actually, it's not the main biography used. I use, I use that for my quotes. It's quite an old biography, but there are much newer ones about her. There's even a graphic novel. Yeah, I did actually hear about the graphic novel about her. Oh, but I didn't get time to buy it no. to read. But I'd be very interested to hear from anyone who has read it. Or I'd like to get my hands on it. But I think there's also a couple of like TV biopics, mm. that sort of stuff mm. as well. So she's not one of our more obscure figures, but I think that in terms of setting up that conversation or setting up that context for thinking ahead to some more deviant women that yeah. we want to think about in the latter half of last century, she's a really very important one to start with. And Absolutely. she takes us through so many of those advances in, in American birth control, American reproductive rights. She was also apparently the inspiration for Wonder Woman. I heard this. Yeah. yeah. I guess it's that activist side of her that they kind of translated into Wonder Woman. Yeah. And I think as well, apparently William Marston, who created Wonder Woman, dated her niece. Oh, wow. <laughs> I think. But again, I don't, I'm not sure if that's okay. entirely true. But yeah, that's a rumor that I've heard as mm. well. And you can see, yeah, you can see the logic of it. You yeah. can see how that yeah. feeds through to it. So an incredibly influential and Absolutely. significant figure Very to important. think about. And I guess next week we'll pick up on where this conversation leaves off and we'll go into the latter half of the 20th century up to perhaps where we are today if we can stomach it. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, that's right. We'll see what we can stomach. Yeah. Okay. But I'm sure we can. Hopefully. <laughs> Hopefully we can. We'll give it a shot. We'll see anyway. So we hope that you will come with us again in another two weeks mm. and another fortnight. And until then, of course, you can catch up on uh, all of our previous episodes. We are on Twitter Facebook, Instagram, follow us at Deviant Women. You can, of course, also support us on Patreon. You can find us there and support us from as little as $2 a month. You can also buy merchandise on Etsy if you'd like T-shirts or pins. And, of course, you can follow us on your podcasting app of choice, iTunes, Spotify, any of those. Leave us a review. We would love to hear from you. And until next time, keep fighting the good fight, mm. everybody out there in the world. And keep your hope up. Your hope. Your Just hope. your one hope. Just singular. Your one singular hope. Try not to let it defeat you. Take care of yourselves. Yeah, that's right. And we'll see you next time. See you later. Bye. Bye.